Welcome everybody to the Wine Tech Insiders podcast, episode nine. We are back. We are talking about the Digital London Wine Fair, the first major digital wine event. Um, Jonathan from Bottle Books was heavily involved. Laurie from Outshinery was there. Nick from Wine Owners was there. And Seb from Trolley was not. But let's introduce our panelists, Seb. Good morning. <laughs> Jonathan. And good evening. <laughs> Lori. Good morning as well. And Nick. Good afternoon. <laughs> so we're going to digest the <laughs> has to be different. Fair. <laughs> it has to be different. Um, so so, so hang on, just, just, just before you start, right? We, we want to talk about the London One Fair. I wasn't there. I wasn't able to attend for different reasons. Uh, can, can someone just give me a summary, a one-minute summary of what was the whole thing like, right? Digital, we're not connecting with people the same. We're not shaking hands. How was the feeling uh, bottle books how did you go about sort of uh, talking to different wineries and talking to different providers how is the whole thing shaping up well uh, the what it consisted of was um on one hand um, a directory where you were able to search and find and discover uh the products and the brands and the exhibitors that were participating and see videos look through their photo books um, and, um, and, uh, and request wines. Um, so, um, on that side, also the requesting wines, uh, was interesting. There were two ways of requesting wines. The exhibitors could either have their wines rebottled into, um, into 50 mil bottles, um, samples, and you could get an exhibitor sampler pack where you get, um, a box of three to nine wines from that, uh, from that exhibitor to explore the top, what, whatever they're wanting to, to display. And the other one was that um, you could also request individual samples as well. So you could go through and say, I'm interested in this wine or this wine and send a, mm. and send a request. Um, and so directory and samples um, was one part of it. Um, and then the other part of it was the interaction. Um, so uh, having a matchmaking component uh, where you could say, I'm offering this, I want to buy this, um, uh, as well as content and content and content. I think that's something that also London Wine Fair has been known, uh, known for for years is that they've always had a strong con content uh, schedule and they continued that this year. So um, it's, it's, a, it's not just one thing, but it is actually a combination of three or four different aspects uh, mm. for people to explore and connect. And with regards to connecting with people, so I can think of uh, Laurie out Chinery, you're, you're mm -hmm. effectively helping wineries with the quality of their product images. Uh, yeah. Did you, did you drive a virtual stand and you were just standing there in a, in a room by yourself and people would walk in? How did that work? <laughs> so not exactly. So as Jonathan mentioned, like we had uh, a sort of virtual booth, if you will. So it's almost like, think of it as a mini landing page hosted by Bottle Books. And uh, this is where people could have a sense of like what we offer. Like we had a, a page, a PDF uh, per product, you know, like, oh, you can do ball shots, we can do lifestyle images. But I think for us, like the most um, interesting component, like the most um, interactive, if you will, have been uh, the using of the Brea platform, which is the part where you connect and talk with people. Think of it as like 
mini Zoom professional dating, if you will. Like it's just uh, really like a calendar, uh, really matches easily like a time. And then you just open like a video call. Um, and it's been really, really fun. Uh, I'm in Vancouver, so quite a bit of a time difference with the UK. So like my first meetings were like 6.30 in the morning, which offers its own challenges, but also it was a wonderful icebreaker. Like, you know, I was telling people like, hey, I'm having breakfast with you today. I hope that's okay. It's like, oh my goodness, absolutely. I uh, got to talk to people in Greece, uh, Stockholm, reminiscing of my days when I used to live in Stockholm and just like really, um, I was impressed how easy like the introduction small talk, you know, that is typical of like the, you know, a fair environment uh, kind of happened, but in a way, you know, higher quality because you kind of chose the people you wanted to talk to because you had their mini bio and profile versus, I don't know, usually my go-to, you know, traditional fairs like, oh, this person is wearing a cool outfit. Let me talk to that person. I know nothing, right, about that person. So this one, it feels like I had a mini, mini pre-screen uh, while at the same time keeping it open. One thing I did as well, so as um, David mentioned, we had the Future Fantastic panel event on Monday, uh, Monday afternoon for the UK, very early here for Vancouver. Uh, I went through the chat, like people that interacted during the conversation um, between the panel, and I requested like, you know, follow up and talk, um, you know, like little Zoom interaction. I know they're not using Zoom, but like for like a better term. And uh, it was really interesting to kind of like, follow up a bit deeper with those people um, as well, because I, I knew, knew them, like I knew what they were, what they interacted. I thought it was, uh, without being super data analytic, like it was still like a lot of data that I never had before in any other trade event. Yeah, I mean, it's the beauty of technology, right? We're, we're, we're effectively capable of tracking every, how many seconds you spoke to someone and what kind of uh, interactions you had with them, 100%. Yeah. Now, Nick, Nick, from your perspective, you're working with um, importers and distributors and warehousing. And do you see that kind of event? I mean, we, we know now that technology does work to facilitate interactions and business communications. Do you see the virtual as taking over the physical given scalability and the amount of people that can come together without having to physically travel? Um, I don't see it as taking over, but I do see a move to a blend. Um, so, you know, our experience was a little bit different at the fair because at the, you know, at a, at a wine related fair where everyone's really very focused on product, very focused on, you know, connecting source of supply with, you know, new distribution relationships. And, you know, where a tech platform talking about business improvement, talking about how to drive gross margin, how to drive your bottom line, it's a, it's a very different conversation. So, you know, we are to a certain extent Cinderella at the ball. Um, but you know what? There are still some people who want to speak to Cinderella, as we know, um, and, and, and not just one, um, which was lovely. Um, and one of the fascinating things that came out of it, um, which was a real advance in terms of how I thought about our business and our place in the world and our relationships with um, with bottle books in particular, and, and potentially people like you as, as well, Seb, is that I'd always thought of the Wine Hub, which is our retail management system, as being the platform for connecting 
importers with retailers and retailers with their customers. Mm. So sort of multi-channel and, and, and sourcing connectivity. Yet I had a number of conversations with producers. Gosh, I mean, you know, the people that you speak to, right? And they came to me not as producers with necessarily needs for a, um, a winery system, although I did, of course, talk about you. Um, Thank you. I, I did. <laughs> um, but they came to me as stockholders. Yeah. And, and, what, and that was fascinating because we know that the market, you know, is, is, is evolving like so many other markets are towards the stockholding model and the loan inventory um, yeah. models. And we know that, that, that those two models need each other. They need to connect with each other. The stockholders see value in stockholding. They need sales and marketing machines to be able to distribute through more effectively to grow. We'd never really sort of thought in terms of producers as seeing themselves as stockholders, particularly people representing producers with, you know, three or four pallets of stock in London City Bond or wherever it was. And they were fascinated by the idea of being able to expose their stock to low inventory uh, uh, retailers, merchants, yeah. uh, that that took away the constraint of cash, yeah. which is you know, which is which is the thing that stops retailers from being able to buy more widely, yeah. and essentially injecting their stock into the hub ecosystem, allowing people to pick it up, sell it, and boom, generating a purchase order off the back of it. So they were super excited by that. And, yeah. and that was a real eye-opener for me, and it sort of changed my perspective of our market a bit. It's, let's look from our perspective. I think it's clear that the overall supply chain of craft beverages like wine uh, today simply doesn't work because unless you're producing 50,000 cases and above, it's pretty much really, really hard for smaller producers to push their inventory in different geographies. Now, we know from data that winemaking is also very unscalable. The vast majority, we're talking sort of 80% plus of wineries are in the one to five to 10,000 cases produced a year. So these guys just don't have enough inventory. They need to hold on to it for the overall transactions to work. Uh, now, now, let me just spin that the other way around, right? Do, we, do you think that ultimately as this model grows, or it can be for anyone really, um, but we have an enormous number of producers around the world, we have a imbalance with regards to production, right? So there's an oversupply of wine, generally speaking. It's been like that for a few decades now. We also know that the vast majority of products are being made by a smaller producer, which require to have a connected digital access to channels. Now, as we connect all those producers together, we're gonna to do London Wine Fair next year, uh, and we're not gonna have a few hundreds, we're gonna have tens of thousands of producers worth of inventory. Is the technology going to be able to truly help a restaurant truly discover a new wine through tens of thousands of wines? Or are we going to go back to the good old, you know, what's your brand? How much marketing dollars are you spending? Well, yeah, it's a super interesting question. And I think it goes to the heart of, is it going to be digital or is it going to be physical? So, 
the physical bit will take care, hopefully, assuming we can all do it and rub shoulders next year. And it was lovely to see the football last night with 6,000 um, people in the stands <laughs> at the, uh, the Arsenal game. Um, that was really cool. So, yeah, let's assume that we can all go there. So, so you've got samples from all around the world. You need to taste. It's efficient to taste in one place. It's, to, it's efficient to network because actually we're social animals and we need to do that. But now the constraint has been taken away from making a choice as to whether you're going to buy, I don't know, Badger and Mountain from South Africa or a wine from Chile or whatever it may be, you can have it all now. You can have that endless shelf and you can make that a curated endless shelf as well because um, you, know, you decide what your, what your um, franchise looks like. Um, and as long as there is a, um, a commitment by the producer to provide enough stock within 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 a geography that makes it reasonably easy to then deliver within a week or two let's say yeah because it doesn't have to be next doesn't have to be next yeah. day yeah then 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 there is no reason why that market cannot connect in a much more dynamic way and at much greater volume and then you know and then the storytelling and the information through the bottle books platform that feeds into the um, wine distribution and e-commerce engine that feeds all of these e-commerces that engage with all of the consumers determines what gets sold because it's going to be about storytelling and giving the end consumer in this sort of network of digital shop fronts the, the the choice of deciding what it is that they're going to spend their money on and look i'm 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 oh, i'm an absolute advocate of technology and and to a certain extent uh, i despite all the challenges we face i actually thank the pandemic for educating everyone that technology is essential but i still want to bring it back to you know a a a Two Michelin star restaurant operator who's in, say they're in, I don't know, they're in Washington, DC, and they want to discover a new wine. If the digital channel is bringing across, there's not one or two or 10 Chardonnay, mm. there's actually 350 Chardonnays you have live access to. How do we help that buyer at the other end? connect with the right producer when there's so many small producers across the globe which in a perfect world are all connected and we have access to all of their inventory and what we want to sell for them well do they connect with the producer or do they connect with the channel of distribution that that wine is being represented through and then the question is how do they get to taste these 350 wines so they can make that choice and that's not scalable <laughs> well, I, mean, I, I think I think but I think there's <clears throat> there's different there's different aspects to that too I, mean, I think what we've what we saw with the, the London Wine Fair with the sheer scale of I mean they shipped 20,000 uh, samples uh, through the through the fair and I think that there is a there's a certain there's a certain 
aspect of that and it's not 20,000 individual bottles that went out but it's uh, um, but rather the samples and so you're able to reach a much larger audience with a, with a wider diversity and yes you like Nick said you can definitely get that that uh, that um, that scale at a physical event to be able to taste those wines yeah. um, but uh, the rest of the year there's not a reason why I mean this is what you can do digitally is definitely a step above of what we were doing before before the pandemic, where you really only had the choice of going to a tasting. And so you had to spend yeah. a half a day driving into town, taste for a couple hours, and another half a day driving driving back home. And um, and so there's, I think, the, uh, yeah, tying back to some of, I think, our discussion from a few weeks ago, it's people might, it will start to be a bit pickier uh, about which events they actually need Attend. have it have it done in person and which ones could be facilitated through uh yeah remotely to achieve the same goals between the you know the must-have yeah, the must-have yeah, yeah. physical physical events and look it's, it's uh, fascinating because uh, oh sorry go, go for it laurie yeah i was just like just like it's just like you know as entrepreneurs and they're just like oh maybe there's a business idea here like maybe we should just create like you know, like the, the the middle uh the middle companies, like you know, like what if like this sampling facility of something like as, as a service becomes like part of the process to get wine out? You know, like it's just we know that putting wine in this tip, uh, test tube and you know getting them out to restauranters and all of this, but like what if it's just kind of like as simple as you know, you put your profile on Trolley and by the way, this is also like the step and then get all the wine tasting and then like the distribution, like one tube and distribution, like, you know, like London Winefred took care of that. They did 20,000 and I'm sure I would love to hear some of the stories because there must be like some good ones, but, you know, again, leveraging technology and processes, like it's just like, is there like soon to be like this, I don't want to say like industry, but it's this middle, you know, middle um, company that just, makes it happen in an efficient standardized way to just make it like you know much more like a reality without reinventing the world just another business ideas i'm I'm (laughs) digging around because ultimately we deal at trolley we deal with small producers we help them with their uh, multi-channel business right so we connect to their e-commerce we connect to third-party sales platform we also generate a lot of import export compliance style documentation and now what i'm hearing is that the data itself so if if we're capable of aggregating all of those you know product information into one big database to help the, the discovery of product the data might not be enough we need to also have some sort of a ongoing samples ordering mechanism. Um, and we know, look, commercial samples flow around the world far more easily than an actual purchase. Um, so we can effectively try and facilitate that, but I'm trying, I'm trying to figure out how much are we truly capable of disconnecting the physical versus the virtual. It's uh, because we're still talking about a lot of producers uh, that unless you've heard of them, unless they have some marketing presence, unless they've had some distribution, some awareness, or unless your uncle went to visit three years ago and they still talk about them, it's impossible to discover them. Uh, it's interesting. Look, it's, I think there is definitely a physical, physical business happening in parallel, maybe within certain geographies. 
right? Maybe it's going to be Europe, Europe altogether and North America mm -hmm. altogether with some impulse. Australia, there's Asia coming up as well. Um, yeah. It's fascinating. And, and look, how do you think, Laurie, from your point of view, you're effectively helping tremendously on the brand and the imaging and the consistency of what's being pushed out. Yeah. How do you think that role becomes absolutely crucial for one Chardonnay producer to differentiate themselves from the other 200? It's very interesting because I think hopefully at one point, the quality of this asset would be like such a high level, like, you know, the Ochanry standard or whatever, like the, the standard that you want to be that the bottle shot on its own, um, you know, the quality of it like won't be enough to just like stand out from like a mixed bag of like missing images or like crappy images. Um, like I think for us, like when we reach that level where really like the quality of the image is not impacting in any way, shape, or form, like your immediate perception of the product may be wrong or right. Uh, that would be that would be first a great problem. I think then it's all about uh, brand recognition and legibility. You know, like it's just like again and again, I'm amazed how sometimes wineries don't realize that their packaging, their branding is their biggest like advertisement, uh, and so. You know, Outchannery is not a design agency studio. Like we're not responsible for like the branding and the look of the label. Um, I'm not going to give name, but sometimes we get label sent our way to create like 3D renders, and it's just like, oh man, like it's it's not a great packaging to start with. You know, like it's just like, um, but you know. So I think I think for us it's just like really kind of like increasing like this legibility and recognition, and kind of like adding uh, hopefully soon like a, a bigger level of like I call it right now for like a better term like the, the visual interactivity, you know like being able to offer solution where you can zoom in and read that back label or spin the bottle like just kind of again like as much as possible like give like a more complete presentation of the physical product in the digital world. Um, be, really going beyond like the, the standard bottle shot uh, that way. But I really, again, like a bottle shot is not something that break it or make it, but like it's something that if you don't have it right, like the like the yeah. visual representation of your product, it's impacting you in ways that it shouldn't really. So it's just really like putting your best foot forward. Um, visual impressions matter. You talked about this on, on Monday at Future Fantastic. What did you say, like the, the amount of the buying decision that was like, what the what the role of the appearance was on the buying decision? Yeah, so like the, the human brain, uh, like we make snap decision on uh, like 15 milliseconds. That's what it takes for from our eye, you know, signal to our brain to kind of like make a judgment on what it is we see. That's just evolutionary. Let me just like look back. Like I was looking at a study by Airbnb that you know they had more means to do um, you know, like a, a bigger study and. What they were saying is that I'm trying to find back my numbers. Oh, it's, it's like it's, it it's clear we're influenced tremendously by factors which we completely underestimate, right? Exactly. 100%. But just, just, I just wanted to share like this, like this study from Airbnb, which obviously is a bit different than like listing, but visual representation matters incredibly. You know, like it's a platform that sell that you know sells nights in um, on night. So. Out of over 100,000 global listings, so like a quite big sample data set, uh, listing with professional photography, and 40% more get booked 24% more often, and typically can charge 26% higher nightly price. The only change, nothing on the listing change beyond having quality totally. photography. 
you know, and I, when I say photography, it's also like the signing of the apartment, right? Like, like the photographers will make sure that the light hit properly, that the things are put in place, maybe there's fresh flower, like, because there's like the photo itself and like the styling of the photo and the expertise. But like, like you know, like their motto is like, like it pays for itself, you know, like it's not, it's the same listing. Like you, you have it, you have the same technique, like opportunity, but by having a terrific representation of it, you get all of this. It's just mind boggling to me. And I think, um, that's what the outside is on a mission for the wine industry to just raise that bar. And um, yeah, that's just getting me excited. Look, it's interesting because as I was saying, I'm, I'm going to bring it back to my 150 producers of a Chardonnay. Uh, and each of them are struggling with marketing. Each of them are struggling with product placement and different channels. Each of them are, are struggling with trying to understand their business because they're focused on running it, making the wine and enjoying it. Right. Um, and I think we have a responsibility to surfacing this kind of information to kind of say, well, you know what, your product image is really good. Maybe you should raise your price, right? To kind of a balance demand versus the offer. Because ultimately right now we're dealing with a hundred Chardonnay at between 15 and 20 bucks. They're all, they're all readily available and some of them will have a shit bottle shot. All right, excuse yeah. my French. You know, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's so funny, it reminds me, so, I, uh, you know, I was and I've been a designer for the wine industry and sometimes, you know, I designed these labels, which, you know, sometimes like require like a bit like fancy finishes, like extra gold foil or embossing and, oh, it's an extra plate and I don't know, maybe it's like this particular thing that just makes the label stand out, maybe cost, you know, $500, $600 more to produce, especially on the first year. And sometimes I would just look at the client, just like what if you raise by 30 cents your bottle and like some more like, like, like what if you just kind of like change like the mindset around it and it's just like people will um they want to yeah like it, it may not impact you can recoup your original investment and then some because then it's a one-time purchase beginning when you get the printing process going and then year after year after year like this expense is already taken care of but you don't have to lower your 30 cents that you increase to make up for it you know like it's, it's just um uh, David, how are yeah, we doing with time? Makes... I'm sorry, I just completely hijacked the whole thing. Are we, are we okay with uh, no, time? No, it's great. I think, you have two uh, more minutes. I have one more question, been... actually. <laughs> uh, Laurie, you mentioned the, the gold embossing. Yeah. Right. And I absolutely... Uh, as I'm, an example. I'm, I'm 100%. <laughs> like, I actually read a study coming out of Australia a couple of years ago, and they have numbers of you know if you have a wax seal it's an extra dollar 50 on the on the on the the worth the price of the the perceived value of the product if you have the gold embossing if you have a a, a um a paper wrapping if you have a wooden box all these things have an impact mm -hmm. and in the traditional physical distribution chain the distributor is going to show up with a bottle and go look dude fucking feel this right it's it's going to be a good wine how does that translate virtually, right? So Nick, for instance, you've got a number of different retailers who we want to pump inventory into their platform for them to generate the sale. Truly, what is their capability of generating a sale for a product that they might not have tasted and that they have probably never touched and they really want to work with somehow their target consumer in order to generate a sale? If there's 150 Chardonnay, how does that shape up? Storytelling. You do it through storytelling. And, and you know, and you have a range of assets and 
And one of those assets is what the bottle looks like, maybe, yeah. Um, and I don't know if you, you know, if you're a, an American producer, you know, really going for the full on flavor, then, you know, you give the bottle shoulder pads and shoulder pads kind of give a sort of visual representation of weight. Um, but I think that's probably being slightly sort of flippant. I, I, I think the main thing is storytelling around the domain, the producer, you know, my favorite producer in Burgundy started up in 1980, 1989, uh, 1999, sorry, his grandfather had run the domain, he'd He'd run the domain in a way that was biodynamic, not that he thought in terms of biodynamism, mm. but he kind of did it according to the phases of the moon and his father had gone to Colmar and sold his soul to Danone. And he came back and it took him X number of years to, you know, reclaim the domain, reclaim the soil, get them, you know, um, macrobiotic activity back into the soil he's braiding he's planting with high density you know he's but got, in that storytelling got, got beautiful i mean you're excited right i mean maybe you're not storytelling excited, how you know does it I mean? scale yeah. right yeah how does it scale how do we get the retailer to say i'm going to put on my online store this one chardonnay not that other one given they've never been there well, you've, you've, you've got to find some way of being able to tag and filter. And, and that's, you know, that's where people like, that's where a business like Bottle Books comes in. And tagging and filtering isn't just saying it's Chardonnay and it's 30.5% ABV and it's and whatever. It's, it's, mm. it's filtering by all of the other parameters. And the parameter that the Michelin star restaurant wants to search by isn't the same isn't the same parameter that a specialist retailer, you know, in, I don't know, in, in um, Maida Vale is going to, is going to select by, and it's not going to be the same criteria that your customer who wants an amazing Chardonnay to celebrate his, you know, daughter's 21st birthday wants. Yeah. Uh, look, it's fascinating because uh, we, we write a pretty much a weekly blog article at Trolley. Uh, and we had one published two or three weeks ago around how wineries are creating new products for the new generations of consumers, right? You're talking about biodynamic, you're talking about sustainable, you're talking about natural style wines, right? And we've never had as much feedback from wineries, right? We're sending this to about 13,000 wineries on a week by week basis. Uh, and we've never had as much feedback of wineries saying, you know what, I've been doing this for 10 years. I still can't sell my wine. And that to me is fascinating. And, we and need I, to I, figure and, out and a way I'm of not, connecting. And I'm, not, and I'm not surprised because I think the inhibitor is cash. Uh, that's know? the thing. And it's all back you to know? marketing like dollars how, and what we need to do. The only way that you can open that up to the whole world is by moving to a model where someone is a lender of working capital in the form of bottles of wine and other parts of the channel of distribution have therefore the constraint taken away. Yeah, oh, we need, yeah, 100%, 100%. Look, we need, we need data to flow and we need rich, rich, rich data, I think, to really allow 
each and every re retailer, each and every restaurant to differentiate themselves in the kind of product offering they want to push, right? So a certain channel might be really good with a 10 to $20 kind of a wine. Another channel might be really specialized on sustainable biodynamic. Another channel might be specialized on small production, sparkling wine, right? Different retailers will have different kind of offering and that's where they each become a bit more of a marketing and a sales engine, truly not an inventory management kind of a system, right? Retailers shouldn't have to manage inventory in a world where everything is produced at the rate of a few, a few hundred cases, you know? Ah, oh, look, interesting stuff, interesting. Have you got another hour? I can just keep going. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm, I'm a strong advocate, I think, product, product information. There's a point here that we've raised today, which is, samples what's the value of trying to be able to have samples even if it's on a once a month or once a fortnight basis to just poof flow around the world everyone who's ordered a sample on the first of the month it's being processed and you're going to get your sample first week of the month data needs to flow and there's a big question mark as to whether we must have samples or whether we can do without or is, is, do you actually have to, I think another aspect that we haven't really explored because COVID has also prevented this as well is that, um, do you actually have to have the samples delivered to your, to your residents? Because if people are able to get together again, then what about sort of an intermediate level of efficiency that you don't have thousands of wines together in one room, but you can go to a few places yeah. around you and have access to a range of samples and some of those you might have ordered it because you are explicitly interested in those wines but then the other that you could sample other things while you're at it because somebody else has perhaps requested it and it's available in the tasting in the in the tasting room so i think there's you know the as we suddenly get everybody vaccinated and um we're able to sort of return to a a, a normalcy um I mean, we're, we're still sort of at the beginning of this. I think we've, we've, uh, we've really gone. Yeah. We've really explored one real extreme uh, after being at really a very physical extreme. And now this hybrid, I think that's yeah. has, has yet to be defined what hybrid is. And it's, it's a whole, it's not just one thing. It's a, it's probably a, a range of, of gray. Um, yeah, oh, look, the balance is going to be hard to strike 100%. I think, I think there has been, historically speaking, an imbalance, as I was saying, with production and who's stuck in the corner. A lot of small producers are basically making the absolute best stuff and never gets discovered. Uh, but at the same time, to actually sort of have some sort of a balance, we need to use technology a bit more and we cannot go back to the old ways. We just cannot go back to the old ways. We need to have more Chardonnays being promoted or pushed or, or being known or being advertised or marketed or whichever way. Uh, 100%, 100%. Oh, look, fascinating stuff, fascinating stuff. Sorry, I completely, did you have any specific <laughs> topics you wanted to go through today, David? Sorry, I just no, completely. What, I may, maybe I'll just um, uh, finish off here. Um, there are some um, stats from the London Wine Fair. Um, there was 2,600 visitors attended, 238 virtual stands. The, the fair was decided on uh, to Hannah uh, from the London Wine Fair decided to go ahead with the digital strategy four months ago. So all of this was put together um, very quickly. Um, there was 3,400 products, 33 different countries. There are 28 panel discussions, 
6,000 views on them. Um, there were 9,500 meeting communications and 20,000 samples were sent as Jonathan um, just mentioned. Um, so, um, you know, the, the reaction still coming out from um, the journalists and industry and people, um, but um, I don't know what, what uh, maybe we could just have a round of, of the final thoughts on, on the fair, um, what, what you thought overall and uh, uh, yeah, if there's anything um, we've missed from say, Lori. All right. Um, so for me, like I really enjoyed like the efficiency of it and the convenience, like, you know, I was able to attend the London Digital Wine Fair from Vancouver. Like there's something still like quite magical about it. Um, really enjoyed the leveraging of technology. And that was just like very intuitive and um, just kind of like open up possibilities. And like I mentioned, like this pre-screening so that you can, you know, talk to people that you have a better chance to like give value and get value from. Um, like it felt like I wasted less time on like the, like the chit chatting, which I know typically is like part of the, like the it's maybe a bit less serendipity. Like that, that could be maybe like a bit of part of the digital uh, um, aspect of it. Uh, but overall, like I felt like, uh, like yeah, like great efficiency without being like too, like too rigid as well. Yeah. Nick, what did you think? Uh, I, I really thought that the conference program was great. Uh, I really liked um, and appreciated being part of our session yesterday on how to succeed in a um, um, digital first post-COVID world, I think was the mouthful as it was, uh, that it was described as. Um, and, um, and what I found was, I think what we all saw was there's quite a lot of interactivity. So there were, there were a lot of questions flowing back to the panelists as well as the panelists discussion as the discussion uh, today in this podcast. Um, and I think, you know, it's a really interesting moment in time for uh, an event like that to um, be there uh, and be there for the business of selling wine, but also to be there for the for the purpose of helping those businesses really think through who they are, what they what they would I you know what they would aspire to be, be to be being, and how they can make that journey at a moment in time where technology is significantly more accessible to them than it's ever been before. So I, I think it, for, for me, it definitely worked at that level virtually in a way that was probably um, more, more present than um, a, um, a, a physical fair. So I was, I was excited by that event in particular. Jonathan, you have the deepest insight into the London Wine Fair, helping them put it all together. What do you think? Yes, um, but I think I might actually take a couple steps back. Um, we talk about the wine industry being a very traditional business and that they need, and that many businesses need to invest in digital um, and take and start this journey. And what you have at the London Wine Fair is a business that at its core was a very traditional business, physical, in-person. It was as, as traditional as you, you get in the industry. And they took a big risk 
um, and delivered on a very big digital project. And um, I think that can serve as an inspiration to other businesses that it is possible. Um, uh, it is by no means easy. Um, and you do have to be flexible and have to learn along the way and adapt. And, um, and even now with the fair being over, it is also still the beginning because now it's looking at what actually worked at the fair, getting the feedback for what people liked and, um, and looking at how the London Wine Fair, the digital London Wine Fair platform uh, continues and, and becomes this hybrid, this hybrid uh, platform that, um, that brings everybody back together every May in London. And Seb, when, when, when is the uh, Trolley World Conference? Oh my God, I've been dreaming about this. Oh my God, look, we're, we're looking at launching a, an, an industry user group right and it's something that we just don't have the, the the time to actually manage this at the moment but we really want to try and get everyone together not just on a world conference on a day-to-day -day basis anyone who needs help with distribution anyone who needs help with marketing with this we need to connect everyone together as much as possible so stay tuned there's going to be something coming up very shortly well, thanks everybody. That was episode nine. We did a big recap of the London Wine Fair, dived into how the industry works behind the scenes and where the future of it might go, how powerful images are. And we talked about the future of order sampling. Thank you so much, Seb from Trolley. See you guys. Jonathan from Bottle Books. Take care. Lori from Outshinery. Bye-bye and Nick from Wine Owners. <laughs>